Welcome to Healthcare Beat, a healthcare podcast brought to you by Seifarth Shaw's cross-disciplinary healthcare team. Each beat will focus on key industry trends and the latest developments while identifying practical takeaways for those in this space. I'm Adam Lawton, partner in Seifarth's corporate department and host of Healthcare Beat. Let's jump in. On today's episode, we'll be doing something a little bit different, hearkening back maybe to one of our earliest episodes on telemedicine where we did not have a guest and it was just me giving some thoughts around that topic. Today will be the same. And the topic is social determinants of health. And for a lot of you, that may seem like a mouthful. So let me explain what that is. I'll give first sort of the more technical definition. This comes from a U.S. government source. Social determinants of health are conditions in the environment where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health functioning and quality of life outcomes and risks. Again, that's a mouthful of words. If you were to say it more colloquially, we'd probably describe it as all the things that aren't the delivery of healthcare services that impact a person's health and well-being uh, is probably an easier way to say it. Where this comes from really is, and you know, many of you have probably seen these stories come out every couple of years as topics around healthcare reform come up or folks are talking about the Affordable Care Act or single payer or different options. The United States just the economy as a whole, not simply sort of government payers, pay a tremendous amount and spend a tremendous amount for healthcare services, far more than any other country. However, our health outcomes are not better as a result. And so there's not really an appetite for spending a lot more on healthcare. And even if there was, there's the notion out there that we may have wrung all the additional health or quality of life out of the dollars that we spend. So spending more won't necessarily make much of a difference. So you are forced then to look at what else could we spend our money on that might make a difference here. The U.S. government sort of breaks social determinants of health down into five areas. Economic stability, education access and quality, healthcare access and quality neighborhood and built environment, and social and community context. That's a little bit abstract, so I'm going to break it down into a couple of examples and sort of tie these into maybe the current situation or the situation over the past 18 months or so with COVID-19. So for example, if you have a child who has asthma, the asthma may be treated more or less, but the child lives in an apartment and there is mold in the apartment. The mold causes the asthma to flare up frequently. Child has to go to the emergency room. Emergency room interventions are very expensive. So that's a lot of cost for the system. That's a lot of resources, emergency rooms. Emergency rooms are already full with COVID patients now. So maybe the child doesn't get the care they need. That's an even worse outcome. What if you could spend some money just to move the child to an apartment that doesn't have mold? or through some mechanism, the legal system, force the landlord to remediate the mold in the apartment. Child has less asthma attacks, child goes to the emergency room less, system saves money, resources, child's health and well-being much better. But you didn't spend a dime more on doing healthcare, and you may ultimately have saved a lot of money simply remediating the mold rather than sending them to the emergency room five times in two months. Second example, medically tailored meals. 
So patients, uh, especially in a, in a pandemic lockdown situation, may have had a lot of meals or food delivered to them. But if those meals are, you know, whatever is available from local restaurants are not tailored to their particular nutritional needs and special conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure or something, then that itself could result in emergency room visits or additional health care or just the management of chronic care. That's going to be very expensive. What if we could provide them with meals that are appropriate? Again, not a healthcare intervention, not a healthcare service, but it's food. It's food that's appropriate for them given the conditions or health status that they have. And the final one is just issues around loneliness, isolation, and depression. Pandemic has occasioned a lot of this. Sometimes these things can be fixed with therapeutic means or pharmaceutical means. Well, you can treat the depression that way. You can't necessarily treat the isolation or loneliness that way, which might be the ultimate cause of the depression. And so if there are interventions, you can't pay for people to have friends, but if you can help integrate someone better into their community where they have community resources, it might be a church, it might be a book club, it might be you know a gardening club of some kind. Anything that helps them increase their social contacts, helps with their loneliness and isolation. As a result, we have fewer cases of depression to deal with. That's another possible intervention that's directed social determinants health. But again, we haven't spent any money on delivering healthcare services, often helping somebody perhaps with transportation or with locating local community resources is going to be a lot cheaper than those healthcare interventions. Where all of this comes from, the WHO, the World Health Organization, identified social determinants of health as an issue maybe 15, 20 years ago. There's some research from a British academic, Michael Marmot, who has sort of focused his research agenda on social determinants of health and how really there are so many things that don't involve getting healthcare services. There are things that affect your heart that don't involve, do you have a cardiac cath lab? Do you have a good cardiologist? There are tons of things that we can do that help all sorts of medical conditions that have nothing to do with actually delivering services and have everything to do with all the little factors, circumstances that surround that person when they're not in a doctor's office or they're not in a hospital emergency room. But I want to emphasize here that this isn't simply some sort of academic fad or abstract concept that they care about in research institutions but don't really matter anywhere else. And I want to point out three different things or three different ways in which social determinants of health are currently impacting the system, ways that the listeners to this podcast may want to think about or plan around within their own organizations. The first are medical legal partnerships. Uh, medical legal partnerships are a concept where lawyers work with medical institutions or healthcare professionals to help patients identify and then address social determinants of health. So the example I gave before was around a child with asthma in public housing or just any apartment. But if we consider that it's public housing, could a volunteer lawyer, pro bono attorney, step in and help that patient get a voucher to move to a different set of apartments that don't have mold? Or can the lawyers work to address the mold issue with the landlord in a legal way? 
Many individual patients or residents will not have the resources to do that, and it's not the kind of matter for which you could hire a private attorney. Often these medical legal partnerships may be embedded within an institution or work very closely with one institution, and sometimes they're more free-floating. Here in Houston, where I'm at, there is a medical legal partnership that is associated with the Texas Children's Hospital down in the Texas Medical Center, that when patients come in, it's a children's hospital, so they are children. One of the things that they screen for is social determinants of health. Are there things in this child's life that are impacting their condition that don't have anything to do with being able to go to the doctor or the hospital, which obviously they're already at the hospital and have seen a doctor. So that problem seems more or less taken care of to that point. And then the lawyers try to find, are there some interventions, some simple things that we could do? Sometimes it's just writing a letter. Lawyers are good at writing scary letters. They write a scary letter to somebody and something changes in the child's life. Maybe it's moving them to a new apartment. Maybe it's helping them get some sort of disability accommodation at their school. Maybe it's building a wheelchair ramp at a school or an apartment building or a home that didn't have one before. Those things can be very simple and much less costly than the cost of healthcare delivery. The second thing that I'll mention is there is a letter, it's actually quite a long letter, that went out to state Medicaid agencies from CMS in January of this year, 2021. And the letter is basically saying, there are these things out there called social determinants of health, and these are the sort of things that we're talking about, and gives a long list, and is saying these are state Medicaid officials and officials who are over the Child's Health Insurance Program, CHIP. Please think about doing something about this. And I don't want to mischaracterize it, but there's almost a pleading tone to it. Like, please think about doing something about social determinants of health and the way that you spend your money. And they list some possible interventions. So I'll share some of these with you. There's housing issues, accessibility, screening and helping people search for housing, non-medical transportation. I mentioned it, you know, helping people get to a book club to decrease their isolation or helping them just get to groceries if they live in a food desert, helping them go to a place where they can buy healthy food, meals, medically tailored meals, home delivery of meals, education. I already mentioned disability accommodations and other types of support services, employment, search, help, and training. Sometimes having a regular source of income and being able to keep food on the table can keep some health interventions at bay. And then community and social integration and case management are just some examples. And, and like I said, the CMS letter is practically begging the state Medicaid and CHIP officials to think of something. You know, don't just spend your money on more emergency room visits or more insulin or more of anything that's sort of an acute care. But think about several steps back in the causal chain. Are there anything that we can do? Is there anything that we can do to prevent these more acute interventions from being necessary? And the final thing is just a link with value-based purchasing. We are increasingly across all payer sources in the industry moving towards a system that's call it pay for value, pay for performance, uh, or value-based purchasing goes by a lot of different names. So it's basically, we're not going to pay you just every time you do something. You, know, you do one service, here's a check. You do a second service, here's a check. But we're thinking more about the overall outcome. What's the big 
picture and like, is this person actually getting better? Are the doctors doing the right things, not just opposed to doing more or less, but doing the right things that help manage the patient's overall health. And that's one area I think where social determinants come into play, where as these payers like the Medicaid and CHIP letter that I just read, as they sort of open their minds about what sorts of things should we pay for, they can link that to value-based purchasing. They can say, you know, we're going to give you X amount of money to manage this group of patients, but one of the conditions that we expect you to document that's going to be tied to your reimbursement is have all of them been screened for potential social determinants of health. And, you know, please present us a plan of, you know, what sort of interventions and links with other organizations, because it's certainly not something that every healthcare provider can do on their own, but what links do you have that you help manage this? That's going to be a condition that we're going to tie to, or even a sort of less intense system be like, you know, we're going to score you based on the overall health of the patient. And if a provider understands that the health of the patient is not entirely dependent on the quantity or the quality of the healthcare services they deliver, but there's all this other time when the patient is not with them, is not receiving healthcare services, and their health is being affected, they may think, oh, well, if I want to hit my numbers so I can get the higher reimbursement rate or the special bonus or whatever it is set up under that system, I should probably think about what are my patients doing all the time when they're not with me? Are there other conditions that might be hurting them that might impact my scores that aren't really under my control? And how can I, if not bring them under my control, but at least nudge my patients in the right direction or help them identify resources that may be available to them elsewhere, not necessarily through me, which can address these issues. So I think that social determinants of health are something that all providers and lots of other organizations need to keep in mind because, again, it's a good idea for patients. It's probably a good idea for payers helping providers manage resources and for payers to save money, but it's going to become part of the overall system whether you do something about it or not. And so it's best to be prepared rather than waiting for it to come down the line and you haven't even heard of it before. So nobody will have that excuse after this episode. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of SciFarth's Healthcare Beat podcast, bringing you the latest developments and pressing issues in healthcare. So you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to visit SciFarth.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you with us again soon.